I feel a little bit this morning about this passage, the way the man felt who was tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail. Uh, were it not for the glory of the thing he commented, I uh, think I would pass the whole thing up. Now, this is a very, very difficult passage, uh, a tough section of Scripture to, uh, to teach, not because the material is so difficult to understand, but because it's so easy to misunderstand the significance of this, uh, of this material. This is what the disciples would have called a hard saying. And uh, I approach it with a lot of trepidation. I I really would rather skirt right around it and go on to the next passage. But this is the next one in line, and so it's the one with which we have to to deal this morning. Uh, I, I cannot remember a time that I taught on this passage that someone did not leave the church because of the material that's contained in it. But that's uh, one of the risks that you run. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2. One of the uh, problems with reading someone's mail is that uh, without any antecedents, without knowing the correspondence that's that's gone on before, it's uh, often difficult to understand what's happening, and this is precisely what you find in this section. Paul begins by talking about a, a particular individual in Corinth who was known both to the Corinthians and to Paul, but he's not named, and nothing of the background is given. You just jump right into the middle of, uh, of the story. So if you had never read 1 Corinthians, you wouldn't have any idea what Paul is talking about. Verse 5, If anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, uh, in order not to overstate myself, is what he means by the phrase, not to say too much, to all of you. In other words, this, this uh, gentleman, whoever he was, had caused sorrow. He should have caused sorrow to all of you, and I would like to say all of you, but I have to, have to qualify my statement to some extent. It's only true to some degree of all of you, and uh, I need to say that, he says, so that you understand that I know that some of you are not uh, in agreement with this approach, with what we suggest for this person. In verse 6, he says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was afflicted by the majority. There was a dissenting minority. But in the main, they had taken some action against uh, some individual, here unnamed. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was afflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such, such a one should be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. That's a good way to put that verb, because this action was motivated initially by love. There was love behind their action. Now he says, reaffirm it. It's not a matter of mere affirmation, but reaffirmation of love. For to this end, I also, for this end also, I wrote that I might put you to the test. Test your character is the phrase. Put you to the test. Whether you're obedient in all things, are you obedient to apostolic authority or not? But whom you forgive some anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what have I forgiven? If I have anything to forgive, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And we say, what in the world is going on here? What is Paul talking about? Who is this individual that they are now to forgive and comfort and, and accept back into the fellowship? 
Well, in order to get the background of this passage, uh, would you turn to 1 Corinthians 2? As Brian Fisher says, if they persecute you in one passage, flee to another. (laughs) As my father used to say, a rat that has only one hole is a fool. 1 Corinthians 5, and this will give us a little bit of uh, background. You know what was happening in Corinth. These people were very, very proud of their church, inordinately so. Uh, a pride that, that bordered on arrogance because they had good teaching and good leadership and they were boasting about their church. And Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, listen, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. You're bragging about the, uh, the spiritual resources of this church and, let you, and yet you're permitting uh, a situation to exist that uh, needs to be judged, it needs to be set right. And he spells that out in verse in chapter 5. It is actually reported, he says. There's, even, there's some surprise that comes through in, in uh, Paul's writing. It, it's actually reported, I can't believe it, he says, that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. Gentiles, that's Paul's word for secular society, for the world, outside the church. We would say non-Christians. Something's going on, he says, that even the the non-Christian world doesn't condone. And then he spells out the sin. Uh, That's his, his consistent tendency to be very specific and call things what they are. He says someone has his father's wife, case of incest. The way it's put would suggest that this affair, whatever it was, was not with his own mother, but with his father's wife. That is probably a younger second wife that his father had taken, and, and perhaps he had seduced her or in some way was involved in, in, in some kind of, of relationship with her, a sexual relationship, because he calls it fornication. And Paul says that's the sort of thing that doesn't even happen among the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, in the Roman Empire, they had laws against incest that would proscribe this, uh, exactly this kind of sin. So it was not only a sin, it was a crime. It was a criminal offense. And Paul says, you're boasting about your church and how great things are going and you're permitting this notorious uh, sinner to, to, uh, uh, to, to live in his sin and you're doing nothing about it. You're just casually overlooking the whole thing, saying, oh, well, boys will be boys. You know how men uh, will behave. And, and you're, you're overlooking this terrible, desperately uh, evil situation. You must, he says, do something about it. I, on my part, he says, though, uh, oh, excuse me, I forgot to read verse 2. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned, the, the word that he uses here, is the word that uh, was used for mourning for the dead, which indicates something of the intensity with which they ought to uh, be sorrowful over this this uh, this erring brother. You have not mourned. Instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. He needs to be taken out of the fellowship of the church. And I, on my part, he says, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, you haven't judged him, but I have. And some of you may be thinking, aha, finally I have found a contradiction in Scripture. Uh, That's what I always thought about Paul. He's just an uptight, 
uh, old rabbi, smug, self-righteous, censorious, critical. And uh, now he is sitting in judgment on this man. And Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. See there, there's a contradiction between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Well, nonsense. Uh, If you turn back to Matthew 7, you can get a much clearer picture of what Jesus meant when he said don't judge. He's talking about being critical of others. Judging with a view to condemnation. Uh, Criticizing the actions of others without any redemptive attempts. With no effort to to try to set things right. Jesus is talking about being critical, not exercising your critical faculties when a brother sins. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on in the next uh, paragraph, as you know, to use the analogy that we talked about last week. If you have a beam, a, a piece of two-by-four sticking out of your mouth, or your mouth, your ear, your eye, I'll get it right in a moment, your eye, <laughs> some part of your anatomy, um, how, how can you see to get the, uh, get the uh, speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye? Well, the very fact very active getting the sawdust out of your brother's eye involves an act of judgment. So Jesus is not saying that we cannot at times speak to a brother or sister who are acting contrary to the scripture. He's talking rather about our attitude, our smug, self-righteous, critical attitudes toward others. But we must at times exercise discernment and judgment and speak to a brother or sister who is sinning. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul says, I've looked at the scriptures And they say, don't do that sort of thing. And here's a brother that's doing it. And you're condoning it, Paul says. I've already judged him. I've judged that this is sin. And you, he says, ought to do the same thing. In in verse 4, in the name, in the authority of our Lord Jesus when you're assembled. So this is a corporate action. They are to gather as a church and take action against this brother. And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I'm there in spirit, he says, but the Lord himself is actually there. He is the head of the church, and he is present. He's not off up in heaven. He is there in your midst. And he is, he, he's sitting there uh, as well as, as I in spirit am with you. And when you assemble, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, what does it mean to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? What do you do? Well, he's already explained that phrase in, in a prior verse. You put that brother outside of the church. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the church, and I'm not talking about the building and the activities of the church, but the body of Christ, this body of believers forms a protective network for us. That's why it's so important that we be identified with a body of believers. It's not our concern to just add names on, on rolls and lists and, and count noses and numbers. That, that's not why we keep talking about getting into a small group or getting into the women's studies or the men's fellowship. It's because we need the fellowship of other believers. Without it, we are vulnerable. We are, uh, we are susceptible to temptation. And failure, uh, because the church provides a, a spiritually, uh, it's a defense system. It's a, it's, a, it's a protective system. And that's why we need one another. And when a person is placed outside of that defensive network, all sorts of terrible things begin to happen to him or her. There's an eroding away of the quality of life. We find ourselves losing control. 
we get into deeper and deeper sin and bigger and bigger uh, trouble and we find ourselves doing things that we never thought we would do. And finally, we come to the end of ourselves and we're empty and desperate and filled with guilt. And we say, what in the world am I doing out here? And we see that in, in body and in, and in mind and in emotions, we're in decline. That's what Paul means by the destruction of the flesh, the destruction of our humanity. And we come to ourselves like the prodigal son. We say, what in the world am I doing out here in the pig pen? When there's so much back in the Father's house. And we turn around, we repent, and we come back. And the result is that the Spirit is saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, uh, Paul envisions this great day when the Lord comes back and all of those who love him are gathered around him. And this brother that he's referring to here will be found among them. That's what he means. On the day of the Lord Jesus, he'll be among those that have been restored to fellowship, to Christ into his body. And you see, the whole thing is redemptive. The brother is put outside the, the fellowship uh, because uh, the, the purpose of it all is to restore him. It's not merely a matter of getting rid of a troublemaker, kicking him out, getting him out of here so he doesn't uh, cause problems in our programs and our activities. It's all for the brother, see? It's for his sake. And so he can be restored. Uh let, let me make a parenthetical expression, uh, a comment here, and then I'll come back. If the worst thing you can do to a Christian is to put him or her outside of the body, how foolish it is for us to put ourselves outside of the body. That's why we need fellowship. And I just want to put another plug in here for the small groups, for the uh, uh, growth groups, for the men's study, for the women's study, for other small groups of believers, because that's the protective network that we need. You men and women who, who travel on business know what it's like to go to another city where you're away from your family and your children and your, and your Christian family, your believing family, and you know what odd things begin to happen to you out there, the thoughts that go through your mind, the special temptations that you experience. We are very vulnerable out there. That's why we need to, uh, to get into a small group and uh, you pull up the drawbridge and you flood the moat and uh, it's not that you hide there, that's not the point. But whatever forays you make out into the world, you've got this defense system, you see, that, that protects you. So into uh, the commercial, let's uh, go back to the passage here. Paul says, uh, when you gather, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And that phrase is explained in verse 2. Remove that man from your midst so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It is all for his sake. It's all redemptive. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You, you, you know that. You put a little bit of yeast in a, in a lump of dough and it leavens the whole mass. It, begin, it invades the entire uh, piece of uh, dough until all of it is affected by the leaven. And Paul says that's what will happen if you don't deal with this man's sin. Others begin to pick up this attitude and they feel that uh, there's no reason why they should hew to the, to the truth. And, and they begin to get involved in the same or similar sins. Paul says, it's like leaven needs to be taken out of the dough. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of, of sincerity, in truth, he's alluding to something in the Old Testament that they, that they all would remember uh, during the time of the Passover festival. 
the uh, lady of the house would go through her her home and she would uh, ransack the the kitchen for uh, pieces of bread or cracker crumbs or other things that had leaven in them and it would be gathered up and she'd sweep out the house it was quite a ceremony they went through if you've ever been in an orthodox jewish home during the passover they still do that they make a uh, a little game out of it for the children. They, they take a candle and they go through the house and they peer into every nook and cranny and they get every little piece of leavened bread out and they pitch it out the, the back door. They get rid of it. Now, Paul says all of that really is a symbol of the reality today. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Uh, he's been sacrificed. And uh, the household of God uh, is purified. The leaven has been taken out. Now, let's make true... Uh, indeed, what's what's true in fact? The house is unleavened. He says, that's what you are. You're an unleavened lump. Now, he said, let's get down to business and, and, and really unleaven it. Let's get out the, the wickedness. Let's get out the malice, the hate, the uh, unkind thoughts and words toward others, the greed. Uh, all of these things, he says, need to be taken out of, out of the house. Because if they aren't, they can infect the rest of the, of the mess. Now... Uh, in verse 9, he goes on to clarify a bit and perhaps to put some balance into things because it's easy for us and for the Corinthians to misunderstand what Paul is saying. I wrote you in my letter. Now, this is the letter that was lost. We, we don't have this one. It's not extant. It, it was a letter that was written between the first and second uh, epistles to, uh, to the church in Corinth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Do you, see, not the apostle, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove that wicked man from among yourselves. And here's just a point of clarification and a little balance. Paul says, when I, when I, uh, I said this was written between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It wasn't. It was written before 1 Corinthians. When I wrote you this book, this letter, he said, I told you not to associate with immoral people. But I want you to understand. It's not immoral non-Christians that we're talking about, not swindlers and idolaters and adulterers, you know, the people that are on the outside. I'm talking about a Christian brother, a so-called Christian, someone who calls himself a Christian, who's identified with a local body of believers and continues to be an adulterer or uh, a liar or an idolater or a swindler or an abuser, a term that he uses means someone who runs someone else down, a very critical a carping sort of personality. Paul says it's those kinds of Christians we're not to associate with. But you have to associate with non-Christians who are swindlers and idolaters and fornicators. That's where Jesus spent his time. That was the constant criticism of his enemies, that he ate and drank with sinners. No, idolaters and fornicators and, and swindlers are welcome here in the church as non-Christians. Because very often their hearts are empty and they're looking for help. And they come here to, to receive help from the, from the gospel and from Christians who love them. I've often thought we ought to hang a banner out here on the front that says, Adulterers, idolaters, swindlers, cheats, liars are welcome here. Because they are. See? 
We don't want to cut ourselves off from people like that. Jesus didn't. We've not come to condemn, as, as Jesus put it, but, but to save. We have good news to announce to them. But Paul says if there is a brother or sister who's acting like this, then you're not to associate with him or with her. You're not to go on as though uh, everything is, is, is good because it is not. You're not to have them over for dinner and play trivial pursuit with them and just go on as though everything is all right because it isn't, see? Now, he's not saying you, ha- you can't have anything to do with them because in 2 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, if there's a brother who, uh, who doesn't heed what I have to say, note that brother and have nothing to do with him, but don't treat him like an enemy, he says, exhort him as a brother. In other words, you stay in contact with the person who's been put outside of of the church, but you don't socialize casually with him as though everything is okay, because it is not. It's very much wrong. And that's Paul's concern. And we read this, and we begin to understand that there there was a very firm stand in the early church among the apostles toward those who, who went on sinning. By the way, we're not talking about people like you and me who just periodically fall and fail and and, uh, and 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 sin. We we all are. We we are susceptible to temptation. All of us at any time could fall into any sin. Let let's face it. We're never above that. He's not talking about that sort of thing. Someone who sins and repents. He's talking about someone who goes on unrepentant in their sin. Who justifies it. Who defends it, and still uh, calls themselves a uh, calls themselves a Christian. It's that sort of individual that needs this kind of redemptive, uh, loving treatment. And again, the attitude with which we do what we do is, is as important as the action itself. Paul says, reaffirm your love, which indicates that at the very outset it was love and sorrow over sin that caused them to take this action for the brother. Now, uh, you read this passage, and it's fairly straightforward. I don't see how you could miss it, but many people think, well, that again, that's the Apostle Paul. And you know Paul. He was a male chauvinist anyway, and so you can't trust him on any other point of his teaching. And Actually, when you get to the Gospels, and there is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and he has an entirely different approach to these sorts of things. But that simply is not true. As a matter of fact, when you go to the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus' stand on sin within the family was even more stern. Turn with me to Matthew 19, 18, excuse me, which is the classic passage in the New Testament on church discipline, the one to which we turn again and again for instruction on how this, this sort, of, sort of activity is to be taken Uh, is to be taken on, to be done. Uh, Just a word first about the context. This is in the the section where Jesus talks about the 99 sheep whom the shepherd leaves for the sake of the one sheep who has has strayed away. He begins by, takes a little child and puts him in his, the child in his lap. And he says, you need to become like this little child. Not childish, but childlike. Your faith ought to be like this child's faith. And then he goes on from there to talk about these little ones who believe in me. And he's not talking about children. He's talking about adults 
whom he describes as little ones because they have a childlike faith, like, like this little child that's sitting on his lap. And he says, don't, don't put stumbling blocks in front of these little ones. Don't cause them to sin. It's a serious thing. He says, it'd be better for a millstone to be hanged on your, around your neck and you'd be dropped into the sea than you should do this. It'd be better for you to drown, in other words, than to do something to cause one of these little ones who believe on me to, to be offended and to stumble and, and to fall. And then he goes on to, to say, if one of them does stray away, the shepherd goes and gets him. That's the worth of the individual. He leaves the 99 to go and get them. He's not talking about going out and doing evangelism and sharing the gospel with non-believers. He's talking about a brother or sister, one of these little ones who believe on me, who strays away because, as he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that are lost. That's Jesus' attitude toward those who stray away from the fold. He becomes the hound of heaven. He runs them down uh, lovingly, redemptively, in order to, to bring them back. And then he says in verse 14, thus, Matthew 18, 14, thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, one who strays away. So what do you do when a, when a, a brother begins to take some false steps, when he, when he starts to, to disobey the, the truth, and, and you see that this is a, is a, has become practice, a continual practice with him? If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. What do you do if you see one of these little ones straying? One of us, or me, or one of the elders, or one of the teachers, or anyone in the congregation, if we start to stray, what do you, what do, you do? Well, you don't go gossip about it. You don't go find someone else to tell. Gossip is a terrible thing. It, it, as a matter of fact, it's one of the things that, that, that God hates. Uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, it's considered to be uh, a worse thing than shedding blood, he says. God hates feet that shed blood, but he hates a brother or sister who sows dissension among the body. We should never talk about another believer when they're, they're struggling and having problems. You don't go to someone else and tell them. You go to the brother. And you reprove him. The word means you summon him to repentance. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. Now, this is not the action of the elders. This is the action of, of any person in this church who sees a, a friend wandering, wandering off. If they begin to stray, what do you do? Well, you go after them. You, you go to seek and save them, as our Lord did. And you try to draw them back. And if they listen to you, Jesus says, you've, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. This is a principle drawn from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy. And it establishes that sometimes there is a need to objectify things. You're to take two or three with you the second time so that the, the brother who is straying realizes that this is not just a personal matter. It's not that you're annoyed, but that it's, it's a much more serious thing. It is a fact that uh, needs to be established. And having two or three there does that. It confirms the, uh, uh, the fact that this is, uh, this is sin and it needs to be dealt with. This is not merely a matter of ganging up on the person or putting psychological pressure on him. It's simply a way of confirming that his actions are contrary to truth. 
And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is to the two or, or three witnesses who go, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So the first step is to go to the brother in private and reprove him in law. The second step is to take two or three along to confirm that this action uh, uh, involves uh, disobedience to Scripture and to implore and plead with the person to repent and to come back. The third action, if he still is unrepentant, and that's the thing to note and underscore if, he does not, if he's not willing to repent, is then to tell it to the church. This is simply an announcement to the family, to this body of believers, that we have a, a little one who is straying away, and we need to go after him. And the presumption is that we will go after him. We don't write him off. We don't give him the cold shoulder. We don't ignore him. We go after him. Because the next line says, if you will not listen to the church, then you take the fourth step. The assumption is that the church will speak to him. And if he can hold out at that point, and by the way, very few people can. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very unusual that church discipline has to go beyond this point. Because if the action is taken in love, and if there is, there is redemptive intent, and there's tenderness and mercy and gentleness shown, person will almost always respond at this point but if they do not then Jesus said let him be to you as a tax collector in a sinner and I take it that what Jesus is saying is that the church is to treat this this individual as as the Jews of that day treated tax collectors and sinners they were on the outside they were put out of the fellowship now again contact doesn't cease but they are outside the fellowship and it's this is analogous to Paul's statement uh that uh, the person is to be placed outside of the church so that the, the body, uh, the flesh, will be destroyed and, and the spirit saved. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 18 to establish that the church has the, not only the obligation but the right to decide on matters of faith and practice. And by the way, their decision is based not on some arbitrary uh, decision or discussion that the elders uh, may have, but it's rather based upon Scripture. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth, uh, the word bind means to impose discipline. But when you impose, impose discipline, following these procedures, uh, it, it shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose, that is when you alleviate judgment, when you forgive the uh, sinner when he repents, it shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name for discipline, which is the context of this verse, there I am in their midst. Jesus is there in the midst of the church judging. And then Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, uh, Suppose we take this action, we follow out these procedures, and my brother forgives, and then he gets caught in sin again, and we carry out this action, and uh, he, for, he, he repents, and we forgive. And, and suppose he does this seven times, should we keep on forgiving him, or do they, at that point do we reject him? And Jesus, as you know, said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. In other words, an infinite number of times. And at this point, Luke records... 
that the disciples said, Lord, give us strength. Literally, increase our faith. But what they meant was, oh, this is, this is a hard thing, Lord. We just have to keep on forgiving people. But you see, Jesus puts this here in his discussion of discipline because it is so important that we forgive, unrepent- or we forgive repentant sinners. This kind of action is only to be taken in the case of someone who is unrepentant. But when they return, when they come back, they're to be enfolded. No hangover guilt. We're not to keep them at arm's length. We're to accept them. Now with that in the back of your thinking, turn again to 2 Corinthians and let me quickly read through this passage. And then what I would like to do, 2 Corinthians 2, what I would like to do is give you an opportunity to ask some questions. We don't do this on Sunday mornings, but I'm going to this morning because I know that I can shake out more snakes in 40 minutes than I can kill in the next 40 days if I don't give you a chance to react. So while I'm going through what remains of this passage, 2 Corinthians 2, I want you to jot down some questions on a card or a sheet of paper and pass them to the aisles. And then I'll give you a chance also to ask questions. So just stand and ask questions if you would like. Because I don't want to leave any, uh, any misconceptions. All right? Now let's, uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians 2. If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. You see, that's the problem. Sin causes sorrow. God did not make up a list of ten things that were illegal and immoral and fattening and and foist them on us just arbitrarily. What we have in Scripture, is a, which we call sin, is a list of those things that cause sorrow. Uh, I have people so often come to me and say, oh, well, you know, my kids are old enough. Our divorce is not going to really cause any problems. And I say, nonsense, nonsense. It's going to cause sorrow. Oh, my husband isn't going to mind. He'll find somebody else. Oh, no, that's going to cause sorrow. It doesn't matter if I have an affair because it's just me and, and my lover. Oh, no, no, it's going to cause sorrow. That's what sin is all about. It causes sorrow and, and heartache and pain and loss. And Paul says, you, you ought to be sorry. You ought to be sorrowful. You ought to mourn that this thing is going on. And there are a few of you who, who have been sorrowful because this man caused sorrow. Now he says there, there, is, a, there is an end to discipline. There's a terminus. It doesn't go on and on and on. You don't permit discipline to strain the limits of of grace. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge, notice he doesn't say I order, here's an apostle, and it doesn't throw his weight around. I urge you, he says, to reaffirm your love. Uh, for him. Forgive him and comfort him. Remember we talked about that word two weeks ago? It means to move in alongside. Here's a brother who has committed this noxious, terribly unpleasant sin of incest. It makes all of us cringe. And yet Paul says, the brother has repented. Accept him back in. You don't need to restrain yourself in your love anymore. Affirm your love. 
And not only bring you back in, but comfort him, move in alongside. You don't just shake his hand and say, we're glad to have you back. But you, you move in alongside and you continue to encourage and, and help him get back into the, into the fellowship and become a useful member of the body. And then he goes on to say that to this end also I wrote, that is, to the end that you might take this disciplinary action, I wrote that I might put you to the test. I might test your character. Whether you are obedient in all things. This struck me this last week in a a new and fresh way because the issue, the issue is obedience to Christ and his apostles. Will we do this out of obedience or not? Will there be a failure of nerve at this point? And you know what? You know what's happening? The, the rest of the world is uh, going in another direction. What's, what's right and good in the world today is just whatever 51% of the people believe it to be or whatever the individual thinks that uh, is right and proper. And they get very annoyed at the thought of somebody else having anything to say about their morality. And so we're going to be we're going to be swimming upstream. The issue issue is: Are we going to obey the Lord in this matter or not? Even if we're misunderstood, even if we are sued, which is a very real possibility, as you know, right now there is still in in litigation in the courts in in Oklahoma a suit that a young woman brought against her church because they disciplined her, and she won her case. She won a $390,000 judgment against that church and still in the courts in appeal. No one knows the outcome of, of that appeal. If, if the judgment is upheld, then you and I are going to have to face this in our body. What do we do if we have to take this action in the face of possible lawsuit? Well, we as elders have decided that we can do nothing less than do what God has called us to do. We must obey. We don't have any other alternative. Even if people misunderstand us, even if they think we're harsh and cruel and, and that this is ungodly action, it doesn't matter. Because our Lord and his inspired apostles say that this is a, this is a matter of obedience to God. That's what it comes down to. Are we going to obey or not? Paul says that's the test of our character. That's the test of our nerve, of our courage. And then... Uh, He goes on in verse 10 to say, Whom you forgive anything, I I forgive also, for indeed what what I have forgiven. If I have anything to forgive, I did it for your sakes. And then he explains in verse 11 what he means, In order that no advantage be taken of of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We, We play into Satan's hands in two ways, either by sinning, we can create havoc in the church by inducing us to sin. And we can play to it into his hands by inappropriate and improper response to those who sin. That's what Paul is saying. And if we permit these acts of, of discipline to engender in us a harsh and unforgiving spirit, we have played right into Satan's hands. Two equal and opposite errors in the church is that we either gloss over the sin of, of those of us in the body, or we are harsh and censorious and judgmental and and uh, we don't show mercy and we don't forgive. We keep them at arm's length no matter what their their state of repentance may be. And when we do, we, we play right into Satan's hands. And there are a lot of churches today that are very, very uh, legalistic and very harsh and very cold to 
toward those that have sinned. We don't want that to happen because to do so is to fall prey to Satan's machinations. We're not ignorant of his schemes, his methods. Now that's the teaching on, on discipline in the church. When you see a brother acting contrary to truth, not just something that annoys you, you can't throw someone out of the church because they become a Democrat, okay? <clears throat> it's, it's a matter of, of biblical truth. Whatever, whatever scripture teaches. If they're acting contrary to that teaching. Then the thing to do is, what? Number one, go to the brother. You don't even have to tell an elder. In fact, don't tell an elder. And don't tell anybody else. I, I occasionally have people come to me and they say, Oh, do you know what that guy's doing? I'm not pointing at anybody in particular. <laughs> and I say, no, and I don't care. But you know, the scripture says you are to go to that brother. That's your job. A friend of mine goes one step further. When they come to him and they say, do you know what somebody has done? They say, no. And you know what the Bible says? It says, go to your brother. Hang on a minute. Get your hat. We're going to go over there and talk to the brother right now. And you're going to tell him what, what's on your heart. See? I like that. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but I think it's a great scheme. Oh, no, don't gossip about others. That's sin. You don't make things worse. That just exacerbates the problem. Go to the brother. Not tell anyone. Just go to the brother. And, uh, and, and call them to repent. Summon them back to the Lord. Nine times out of ten, that's all you have to do. They're just waiting for it. I'm so glad you came. Because I was such a mess. And I just needed this word of encouragement. And then if they won't hear you, you know, you don't get mad and you don't get resentful and you, you, you get two or three more not to not to pressure the dear person, but but to let them know that this thing is bigger than themselves, that this is a matter of sin, and they need to deal with it. It objectifies the the it drains some of the emotion out of it, it objectifies it a bit. And then if uh, if they won't listen, then you tell it to the church. But again, not in a hypercritical way. You just inform the church of a brother or sister who's in sin. Go after him. Go rescue him. That's what it is. It's a rescue operation. And then if he won't listen to the church, then he is to be to you as a tax collector and sinner. And I don't like to use the term, kick him out of the church. Let's stop using that term. Even excommunication is too, too strong a term. He's just, he's just put outside the church for a period of time. He, he, he doesn't share in the Lord's table with us. He doesn't attend services. And if he forced his way in here, of course, no one would say anything. But, but he's just asked to stay outside until, until he sees what he's done and he's willing to repent and come back. And when he comes back, we receive him. We enfold him. We love him again. It's all over. Every, no condemnation. It's all over. Men sang about the prodigal son. It's such a good way to end because uh, that's, that's precisely the issue in the, the prodigal, in the story of the prodigal son. Here's a son who goes off to live in a pig pen. And he comes to himself. And he, and he realizes what good things he had in the father's house. So he comes back and he's still smelling like the pigs. And the, the father is standing on the porch and he sees the boy coming back and he loses his dignity and he runs down the path and he grabs the kid and he smells to high heaven, but he doesn't care. He welcomes him back, takes him in the house. Brother gets all uh, bummed out because 
The father was so loving to the son, he grumps around the house, disdainful of the son, angry because the father didn't, didn't appreciate what a terrible sinner the boy was. I read this last week about a Sunday school teacher that told the story of the prodigal son, and, and uh, she got to that point, and she said, Now, who was sorry that the prodigal son came back? The little boy piped up and said, The fatted calf. <laughs> But it wasn't the fatted calf. It was the boy who was fat and happy in the home. Who hadn't gone through all of that. And you know who is, and I have to speak, you know, I, I speak for myself for all of us. You know who tends to be most critical of people that are sinning? It's people that really don't realize how sinful they are to begin with. So I'd never do that. I'd never commit incest. No, but we're pride, proud, and, and arrogant, and resistant to truth in other areas. And maybe we would do that given sufficient opportunity. See? That's why Paul says when you, when you, in, in Galatians 6, when you go to take this action, consider yourself. Take a look at yourself. You're just like he is. You're just as prone to failure. And when he comes back, you don't reject him. You'll welcome him back with open arms. Now, that's all I have to say on this subject. And uh, what I would like, well, I could, I could go on and on, but that's really all I have time to say right now. As a matter of fact, time is up. But I'll give you about a minute if you'd like to ask questions or respond in any way to what's been said. Uh, do you have any written questions? If so, pass them to the aisles and we'll have the uh, ushers pick them up. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, you know the, the intent of our heart that it's, um, it's simply to follow out the teaching of your word. Protect us, Lord, from imposing upon the text our thoughts and our ideas because we know how far afield we are in our, in our thinking apart from revelation. Uh, give us, Lord, the nerve, the courage to do these things, but to do them in the proper way, never to, uh, to merely be critical of others and certainly not to be self-righteous but with an acute awareness awareness of our own uh, weakness and propensity for sin to reach out toward those that are, that are straying. Help us to see them, too, not as the enemy, but as these little ones who stray away. And help us to deal with them tenderly as we would with little ones and to demonstrate uh, love for them and, and certainly to demonstrate forgiveness when they respond. Forgive us, Lord, for our tendency to keep people at arm's length as though they have to earn their way back into our good graces. Since you never do that, Lord, when we respond, we are forgiven fully. And we can step back into a, a walk of perfect fellowship with you. We would ask that for, for us. So, uh, Lord, we ask that it would never be necessary that we go... Uh, that we take all of these steps, but that all of us gently wash one another's feet as we make our way through the world and cleanse one another from defilement and, and take this first action in, in such a way that, that the corrective is applied and we repent and, and come back to you and walk along together with you. Thank you for this instruction. We uh, ask for the Spirit to carry it out in, in the spirit in which it's given. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.